Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Jake, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get uh, let's get into it first. You obviously have a very successful YouTube channel. As I look at right now, it's 1.67 million subscribers. A congratulations. That's that's awesome. Like that's that's a number. Um, what got you interested in? Would you call yourself an investigative journalist or a, doc, a filmmaker? I don't know how you describe yourself, but what got you on that trajectory? Yeah, I definitely would never call myself a journalist. Um, I would say, you know, my job is to. I believe if you believe that the world should know something, you should present that information in the most entertaining way possible. So that's kind of my job. You know, I take stuff that I think people should should know and I package it in a way where it's just super, super binge worthy and entertaining to watch. So I think that's my role in it. I don't do like, I don't go out. Sometimes I interview people, mm-hmm. I guess a little bit more journalistic, but mm-hmm. I don't go out and like, you know, find the stories themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of praise for journalists that actually go out and, you know, put their lives on the line to find stories and stuff. But I don't really play that role. But in terms of like getting into YouTube, um, I grew up during the era when YouTube was starting to take off and full-time YouTubers started to become a thing as I was growing up. So I was watching all these YouTubers. It was my main form of entertainment because I didn't have cable uh, growing up as a kid. So I just really fell in love and got super, super obsessed with the idea of being a YouTuber uh, ever since like middle school, high school, mm. maybe maybe even before that. I'm not sure, but it was just like, uh, I saw like a few videos on, you know, how you make money with YouTube or how the business works uh, around middle school, high school time. And after that, I just got really obsessed over it. And at the time I was doing Taekwondo, I was a Taekwondo instructor. So I created a Taekwondo channel as my first try. That didn't really work out. So I took a break, came back to YouTube like a year later. And after like another year of trial and error, I finally stumbled upon the video style I do right now. And that really took off. So that's, that was kind of how I came into this little niche. <clears throat> yeah. And and I, I enjoy your, your video style. I've um, dabbled very loosely with editing videos and stuff. And it, the, the amount of work that it takes to put that together. I think a lot of people say, I want to go on on YouTube. And they don't realize to put out a high quality video like you're doing, it's, I don't know how long it takes you, but it's uh, it's hours upon hours uh, for the research and then hours upon hours upon gathering clips and then probably hours upon hours of editing and graphics and stuff. It's probably a few weeks if I had to guess, maybe months process. I don't want to diminish it, it, but I think a lot of people look at it and that's that's the beauty of like LeBron James or someone great. They make it look easy. And then when you go to do it, it's like, oh, wow, it's really hard. So how did you get over that hump of like maybe – a misconception of how easy this was to actually being able to put out a quality product. Yeah. So exactly what you said, like on the outside, it looks easy, but on the inside from zero subscribers, like my first try at YouTube to hundred K it was around like four years, which is why I say I got a degree in YouTube uh, just because it took like four years mm-hmm. and I didn't like go to the scale of videos right away. Like when I first started, it was just like talking head videos. Like I would be in front of a camera and it would be super basic editing and as I got comfortable with that, I start slowly like tried to scale up like how complex the editing was. And by the time I was trying YouTube again, it was like my third year at this or whatever. 
and out like nothing was working just because at the time I was copying a lot of the YouTubers I liked instead of trying to you know innovate and come up with my own unique style. Mm. But once I realized that that was what I was doing wrong, I wasn't innovating enough. I wasn't. I was just copying everyone. Um, I looked at the landscape of YouTube. I looked at what videos I liked and what I didn't like, and I kind of like formulated the video style I have now, which at the time no one was really doing. And I looked at, and that was when I first started trying like this editing style where it took like way more work than just sitting in front of a camera, pressing record, adding in a few cuts, et cetera. And so that whole time span was like three years. And what really helped me was in high school, I was lucky enough to have graphic design classes at my school where you learn Photoshop and other Adobe products. So Photoshop is from Adobe and they also make another product called Illustrator where it's like more graphic design, like objects and text and stuff. And all those, the Adobe suite, they use like the same keyboard shortcuts and tools and terminology that their video editing software uses, Premiere Pro, which is like the industry standard. So I had a slight, a slight head start in that. And that really made like video editing a lot easier for me. So it was like a very, very gradual long process to get to this point. But today, like at my peak when I was, uh, when I was editing for this style of video, it would take me around an hour to edit one minute of footage. Okay. Wow. So a 10 minute video is 10 hours. If you add animations on top of that, like more complex animations, each of them takes like, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour each. So it just goes up from there. Mm. Wow. So you mentioned earlier, um, like today you get one out on the day we're recording this is on Qatar uh, in the World Cup. Obviously, that's been a controversial subject for folks who have studied it. So, a, you know, how do you go through the process of saying this is a story I want to cover? And then, B, these stories are very large, very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. How do you go through the process of determining which story you're trying to tell? So, that's a common question I get. Like, how do you come up with the next video idea or whatever? And that's really like, it sounds small, but it's, kind of like one of the hardest parts about YouTube is coming up with the next video idea um, because you have to balance it out. Like it's a business. So you have to balance between, you know, what people are going to watch, what you actually like and what you're passionate about. Uh, and you have to find that middle ground where it's like relevant to people. People will watch it. It's very viral, but you're also interested in it. And you also think it's important for people to know. So in this case, uh, you know, the World Cup just happened. So there's a rel- relevancy factor. Um, and I've covered the Kafala system before, but this was just a more relevant angle to it. So that was kind of how I went about it. And when I research a video, I usually start with, um, just taking in super broad stuff like Wikipedia articles, YouTube videos. I start with super broad stuff and I slowly like, uh, drill down into like deeper and deeper sources like books articles, et cetera, until I get like a pretty clear picture of what's going on. And um, I come up with like an angle for the video. So it's like part art form, part like, like algorithm strategy thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the criticisms that we get in the independent media business, um, so you're more on the documentary side, I'm more just kind of on the interviewing people side is that we, we kind of go unchecked. Like we, of course, if you follow mainstream media or corporate media, you find that they're 
got a bunch of stuff that they get wrong too. But but for some reason, there's there's a unique pressure on us, it seems, on how we tell stories or how we interview people or who we even interview. Um, it, it's, it's quite weird. Um, do you feel that pressure when you're making something about Qatar or Joe Biden or Trump or whoever it might be? Yeah, I mean, we try our best to make sure everything's factual, everything checks up. But I think, I mean, I think it's just a free market. Like if you make a bad video uh, that isn't factually true, people are going to trust you less and less and less and less, just like with mainstream media. I don't think you need a, like some journalist degree to Mm -hmm. figure this out. Um, Because everyone can, like you and I can interview people on our own. We can put it into a video. Like we don't need like a degree for that. I think, I think the criticism is kind of just like, when Uber first came along and taxi drivers were just like super enraged because they have to go through all the certification process and they have to pay all these fines and registration fees. Whereas Uber drivers can just sign up on the app and just start driving. So they like lobbied the government. I think it was in like New York. They lobbied the government to ban Ubers and stuff. I think it's the same argument here that mainstream media is making towards like independent journalists. Like if you put out a good product, it's a good product. So those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, and that's I think the balance is really when I think about the people I want to have on. Um, you know, we have on. I don't know when this will be out next week or two, but it's likely that this week this, that your show will come out. You know, we might have on a professor from Harvard or you know someone who's wrote a memoir. We'll have you on, and so trying to think about um, the audience, what's interesting, and then also realizing that sometimes. What you might think is interesting, the audience might not, or some someone that you might not find interesting, the audience really did. We had a podcast on um, this guy named Alexander Dukin, did huge numbers. And I was like, wow, I didn't, I mean, I was excited about the guest, but I was really surprised that the audience really resonated. And so it's a, it's a weird mix to think about what's an important topic. And then also it's a business. And so how do you present that information? And then also not to be too skewed by the money so that you don't become the next um, overhyped sensationalist. And so you're trying to kind of balance those things out. That's always a struggle that at least on this side of the, on, on the fence, I find, do you find that as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like an art form balancing this stuff. Um, if you skew like too much one way, then that's not good. If you skew too much another way, that's not good. So you want to balance like, you know, making money, getting views and putting out something that you truly believe in. Um, so yeah, it's always a balance. Like I, I'm pretty much like always thinking about this stuff. <laughs> so when you tackle a controversial issue like like guitar um i say controversial it's controversial because um in 2023 if you're not delicate over how you represent um certain sides of the story you can be attacked for being overly zealous or not not sympathetic or or whatever it is does that does that shape your video like on guitar or or you know a, a republican or a democrat um I think I've gotten to a point where I just like don't care about <laughs> yeah. criticism and you know for my videos they're not like su- like we talk about geopolitics and political stuff but it's not like overtly political like I, I don't want my videos to be like that so I try to look at things from like the business mm-hmm. money and power angle so I think that in a sense like insulates me from like some of this criticism criticism because I usually don't get it um Maybe it's also because I'm Asian and people say this against white people more. I don't know. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's that may be true. As a white person, can I comment on uh, on that or not? <laughs> no, it's it is it's um we um today we released an episode with uh, Carol Heldman, Caroline Heldman, and um she was talking about intersectionality and social justice and stuff like that, and and she was talking about um in the U.S. you know how um you know the white male has the has the most power, and and I said, well, you know, if you took that example and you you applied it to China or to spots of Africa, that analogy wouldn't work anymore, right? So it's 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 a U.S. thing, and so talking about how you talk about those issues outside the U.S., you have to be quite careful that you don't make it a, a color thing. It's it's about this this other issue that, at least from her perspective, is is problematic, and and that's what I find interesting is in that discussion. Like, well, a white male can't talk about stuff. It's like, well, actually, the issue that's being debated is that here, allegedly, the white male is a problem, but actually, in this country over here there's someone else that's the problem. And so can the white male then speak to that? Like you get these weird, (laughs) these weird things about who can, who can comment on what, and it gets quite, quite convoluted um, trying to determine what people think is, is appropriate or not. And I I don't know. I feel as if we're in a spot now where um, people are searching for, you know, um, what they feel like content creators that they can trust. And you mentioned that earlier, gaining the trust of the audience. Um, how do you protect that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, to add on to your earlier point, I think another thing that insulates me is I've criticized like everyone, like every government, US, China, Qatar, Middle Eastern ones, et cetera. Yeah. I think that insulates me a bit too. Um, and as for your question, um, well, can you repeat it one more time? Yeah. So when you get the trust of the audience, how do you protect that trust? Right. Um, I think it's just by sticking to what originally got you that trust. So I just finished reading a book called How the Mighty Fall about how the biggest companies, how some of the biggest companies have fallen. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, they were super disciplined to build up to that point where they were great. They were super disciplined. They watched their cash flow. Uh, they didn't get into too much debt. They looked at the numbers. They accepted the reality if their numbers were going down and whatnot. But once they get to a point of success, it's super easy to become to get like hubris around like how great you are. And it's easy to, you know, deny the numbers. Like if you see the numbers going down a bit, it's easy to just chalk that up as like, oh, this is just a temporary thing and whatnot. And that starts to your gradual decline. So I think the same applies here, where you have to main you have to keep you have to be super, super disciplined about what gained, what what got you that trust for your audience in the first place and maintain that. Mm. A good example the book said is, you know, the author, I believe he gives these like business seminars or something. Yeah. And Jim one Collins. of the guys, yeah, one of the guy, guys that came up to a seminar was a former Vietnam War veteran. And he asked the Vietnam War veteran, what's your what's your advice for like surviving like when you're pinned down against the enemy or whatever Mm -hmm. and he said that you have to slow down not shoot on automatic put it on semi-auto and just take one gradual shot at a time Mm -hmm. you don't waste any ammo so with uh great companies a lot of the times success will go to their head and they'll just start like spraying on automatic and waste all their ammo so the analogy here would be to like, once you get successful, you have to stay like super, super disciplined, you know, stay calm and take one shot at a time. Yeah. 
it's quite interesting because um, we criticize athletes like LeBron James or, or whomever it might be. And uh, I often re- re- tell people that if I was LeBron, he's the same age as me. I think he's a year older, but same age. And I was 18 years old and you gave me a hundred million dollar shoe contract. I would not be, and I had all the, all the same talent that he had. I would not be half the player he was. I'd have a hundred million dollars at 18. <laughs> that probably yet. <laughs> I'd probably be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to show up for some practices guys, but but that's it. So there is, there is this ability that some people have to, uh, climb the mountain, if you will, and then stay at the top. And that's that's really an underappreciated skill. I think we we presume that people at the top um, sometimes almost have it easier. And it's like, no, 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 to stay up there is, is extremely, extremely hard. And so. Yeah, it's- exactly. Yeah. And what, when you're at the top, everyone is trying to tear you down, uh, whether yeah, yeah. editors or critics or whatever. So it gets, I would, I would say it gets even harder. I mm-hmm. think that's why uh, if you notice, like, if you notice a lot of successful people, um, they usually don't have a second success that's bigger than their first, besides like Elon Musk is a rare outlier. Like usually when people get successful, it's very hard to like one up that later in their life. Like they have like this one giant grand success that everyone knows them for, but they can never like replicate that and do it bigger just because, you know, you get too comfortable. You already have the success. You don't have that hunger and drive anymore. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. Okay. So I, I, I told you before, I want to talk about some of the videos and we keep getting all the side stuff. So I, I do want to get some of the, the topics that you've covered. Um, so we talked about Qatar. What was the biggest shock for you doing the research on the World Cup in Qatar? Um, honestly, like by, by this point, I've researched like so many bad things that not many things surprise me anymore. But, you know, these workers from Nepal and South Asia they they were promised these they were promised the dream of like making a lot more money like twice as much as what they could get find in their home country so that's why they should go over to the middle east but to go to the middle east they would have to go through a recruitment agency and to go through the recruitment agency it would cost like a few thousand dollars which these are like super poor people from south asia they definitely don't have it so what they have to do is borrow money to go to the middle east but to borrow the money, some of them would be charged like 35% interest. Mm. So, uh, and then they would get to the country and they wouldn't be making the money they thought they would be. Uh, their paychecks would be withholding, their passports would be withholding. And these people just like end up in debt for the rest of their lives. It's pretty sad because some of these workers at the World Cup, like, they started building this around 10, 12 years ago, I believe. So some of them have been there for like a decade. And now they came there with the promise of making a ton of money. And now they're worse off because they're in super high interest debt. So that was probably the most surprising part to me. Okay. So when you think about a story like that, we have FIFA who organizes the World Cup. So at some level, the top echelon of, of that organization understands what's going on. You have the country of Qatar who understands what's going on. Perhaps I think Fox was the TV, um, at least stateside um, producer of the content here. They have some uh, understanding what's going on. How are you fair? Because when I think about that and the frustration of people pulling, you know, doing this um, on one side, and then the next side, they might come out and lecture me about morality. I'm like, mm, mm. it's it, it would be hard for me to want to give them a fair 
a fair look because it's like, man, you guys, I am, I am a free market capitalist. So I'm, you know, if someone wants to work for uh, in Qatar under the no fraud, like they understand the terms, they won't take the risk. That's fine. Uh, but people are being scammed. Um, how, how do you try to give that side of the equation who knows what's going on and is not telling the world about it so that they can put on this big show? How do you give them a fair shake? I mean, you don't. I think it's the same. <laughs> I think it's the same as like Apple using like de facto slaves in China to build their iPhones. Like, um, you just you just accept the fact that they know about this and they don't care. So, but but they speak to cultural issues in the U.S. as if yeah. they're not doing these things. Yeah, and I just don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is it is a weird dichotomy because you you will see these things if you're in the international space you know what's going on with yeah. these big corporations and then they come stateside it's like the NBA with the China stuff a few years ago you know Daryl Morey sent this tweet which Twitter is not accessible in China just so we're clear and you had this huge reaction I remember you have um, the owner of the Houston Rockets Fertitta coming out and he said that Daryl Morey does not speak for does not speak for the Houston Rockets it's like he's the general manager. Actually, he does speak for you guys. He goes and does interviews. I've heard him do interviews about the team multiple times. Yeah. What what, what a coward, Mr. Tough. He's, he's got a book called like Shut Up and Listen or something like that. Yeah, what what a what a tough guy you are that you're you're running to the hills um over a tweet that can't even be seen in the country that says that they're offended about it. Yeah. But you want to lecture me about something else. Like you you have no integrity or spine. And so it, it becomes an issue of we can debate whether or not it's wise for Daryl to tweet out. Whether the react, I mean, we can debate all kinds of stuff about it, but but that that that, that fake outrage and all that stuff, I, I, I it it gets my goat. Yeah, and I think it's very surprising that I think it shows a lot about how you know Westerners and Americans, like at the end of the day, we're all humans and we just care about ourselves. Like these fans of the Houston Rockets or whatever, like they know they they've heard these this news, but they still watch the games. They still mm-hmm. find them. Mm-hmm. So I think. It shows a lot more about like Westerners in general, like the general population in general, that everyone knows about these things. I have an iPhone and I know like they're slaves. <laughs> so I think it says a lot about us and you know how humans at the end of the day, like we're mostly we mostly care about you know our well-being. We put our interests first, even if there's like a slave halfway across the world making this. Yeah. I, I do think there is so if you take the the um apple iphone example um with china the the question i think there's a question that you could ask which is what was the life of this person prior to industrialization life expectancy ability to get food versus what is it today and, and and when people when you say that people go oh my gosh I say well I'm not, I'm not trying to say that this is great I'm saying I don't think it's wrong to at least ask the question is it a step forward is it where we want to be no is it a step forward so I, I do think that we as commoner as the common folk can can ask that question that's not the same question you can put on Apple which is hey why are you guys demanding that they work sixty hours a day or you know or whatever it is or you know these crazy schedules like that so there we we can't force Apple, perhaps. I guess we could all get rid of iPhones. That might force them. Uh, but we can we can at least have some thought about 
are things slightly better on the margin? Perhaps, maybe they're not. You might say they're not. Um, but we can also still criticize Apple for their for their actions on doing this stuff. So I don't think it's necessarily hypocritical because you can't get Tim Cook to do anything. Probably, I mean, you, you've got a big big channel, but he's probably not watching your videos, unfortunately. Um, and so I, I think that's where the average person can have these conversations, understand there's a tension there, understand that we we by consuming are part of the problem, but also can push the companies to change by either not buying or just putting that social pressure on them because they do seem to respond to social social pressure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't think any of these issues are like black and white, like Apple is like entirely bad, but um, there's definitely bad stuff happening. Absolutely. No, absolutely. M- yeah, my more complaint is me and you can't control where the iPhone's made. I don't know where the, the Galaxy's made or the Google phone's made. I'm sure there's plenty of problems with, with that if you start looking into it. And we can't control that. They can, they do control it. And then they lecture us about morality. That would be the, yeah. that's, that's, that's it's a little bit different, different equation. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how much, how, I wonder how many of those like ads or social justice ads or these companies like lecturing us, like how many people, how many people actually believe, believe and listen to them? That'll be interesting to find out. <laughs> you should do a documentary on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I saw you, you, so a few of your recent videos, at least the time this recording is um, you're talking about we work. He's back. It says he's back. Um, what is going on with we work and what has happened with we work for people who might not know? Yeah, so Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, um, if you're not familiar, like WeWork was hyped up to this, I believe, like $60 billion unicorn um, because he was able to pitch the company and sell the company as a tech company, as this revolutionary tech company that was going to change the way we work forever. When in reality, there there wasn't much tech in this company. It was just, it was basically a real estate company. They owned a bunch of, um offices all around the world that they rented out to people for a monthly fee so but he was able to sell it as this tech company and that's kind of how that's kind of the whole game of silicon valley and the world of venture capital is that if you can sell your startup idea as a revolutionary tech company uh investors when they hear tech company they think they're looking for investments that can 100x 1000x and the only way you're going to get those super super uh outsized returns as, as they call it is through revolu- revolutionary tech companies so they're looking for the next google the next facebook etc like those at the time google facebook whatever those were real tech companies they invented like a brand new technology and they popularized it where it wasn't there before and now the whole culture of venture capital and startups is you want to take like some existing industry, like real estate or whatever, co-working spaces, wrap it in this pretty website and this pretty logo and this pretty messaging to make it sound like this revolutionary tech company that's going to be set to explode. Uh, That way you can raise more venture capital and hopefully you can IPO, uh, go in the public market, dump it on the public market and uh, walk off with the money. So that's what WeWork was trying to do. But as they were trying to IPO, the IPO process is a very strict process where they look at your numbers and everything. Uh, once people started to see that, hey, this isn't a revolutionary tech company, like the magic wore off and that their numbers, like this isn't a functioning company, they're losing a ton of money, like they're they're not making money, which is the purpose of business. Uh, the, whole, the whole image collapsed and their whole valuation collapsed 
and they had to like pause the IPO or something. So that was the whole guy behind WeWork. And there's been like a bunch of videos and documentaries made on him where he's like this very charismatic founder type where he, he kind of like framed himself as like this like cult leader mm-hmm. in the WeWork cult. Um, and all those things that you find in like a charismatic leader. Uh, that's that's kind of how he was. So he he went from this, like one of the number one popular founders in America to like one of the most hated men in America uh, after WeWork fell. And after that, he kind of like fell into obscurity. Like he just, he walked off with like a few billion dollars as a severance. Like the company paid him a few billion dollars to leave after destroying mm-hmm. the company. And then he kind of just went into the background. Like uh, he went out of the spotlight and little did people know he was spending the last few years building up a new startup. This one is called Flow. And uh, Flow has no working products, but for some reason they were able to get a hundred million dollars of an investment from one of the biggest venture capital firms, A16Z. And with that $100 million investment, it valued their company at a billion dollars without any working products. So that's kind of the gist of the video going over this new startup and how like this is, this really is nothing new and outsiders looking in, you would be shocked that this guy that destroyed WeWork um, is now getting a hundred million dollars. Whereas, you know, the average person can't get a raise, but the whole idea behind that video is that you know, this shouldn't be surprising because this is how the world of venture capital works. Like whoever mm-hmm. is the best at hyping up uh, companies, uh, those are the ones that succeed. So yeah, Adam, Adam Newman, he's a, he's like one of the best at the game. Okay. I've got a pitch. Um, we'll call it Jake and Ryan, JR for short. It's revolutionary. It's got some kind of tech component to it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll settle for 75 million uh, right now. So Whoever's listening, just send the check, right? I mean, is is it, <laughs> is it that easy? Um, I don't think it's that easy. But the thing about uh, the WeWork guy is, I'm, I, I haven't looked into this in a few years, but if I remember correctly, he was taking these, these bankers um, to like all the clubs and they're all partying with him and stuff. And so they should have known a lot earlier. I'm not, I can't remember if they did know or didn't know, but they at least should have known. But they wanted to go party with him. And so they were caught up because he was a rock star at that time. And so everyone's talking about how great this guy was. And they kind of got caught up in the moment. And, and, and it's like, hmm, you, you, I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I'm a high school graduate. I can't do these complex numbers, but I can see red and black on the balance sheet, you know? And so it, it, it gets frustrating when you hear these stories because, it went a lot longer than it should have. Um, again, this is kind of the whole game of the startup board. Like most startups don't make any money. They, they actively lose money. And the whole idea behind that, why investors throw money into companies that make no money and lose a bunch of money is because they're, they're hoping that, you know, these companies, these tech companies, they haven't figured it out yet. But when they do figure it out, when they do hit on like the Facebook, um, ad marketing model or Google's ad ad money model. Uh, The hope is that when they actually hit on that product market fit, that they are going to see like insane, ridiculous profits Mm -hmm. like 
a Google or whatever. Uh, but most of the time that doesn't work, uh, that, that doesn't pan out. Like these companies, like they're fundamentally always going to lose money, but investors in their mind, they're looking for that. They know that nine out of 10 of their investments are going to go to zero, but they're hoping that they're going to hit on that, the, the next Google or whatever. So that's kind of the rationale. So when you look at, yeah. Say, but like a serious question, wouldn't it make more sense for someone to come and invest in your YouTube channel or channels of your size, knowing that um, the right staff, more content, more cuts, shorts, long form, transcripts, websites, they could actually turn that into a scalable business. They're not going to make Google money, but the the chance to take like a channel like yours from 1.6 to maybe 10 million um, and then how you could lace ads and whatever, like that would seem to make more sense. Why do you think those companies, is it just the trying to hit that one home run is really so attractive? Uh, because there's a lot of other plays that would make more sense. Yeah, that's the entire game of venture capital. Like you're looking for that what, uh, one home run that's going to set you for life. So if you look at a real business like my channel, how what's the highest return you can realistically get from a YouTube channel or like a media business, maybe 10 X, maybe 20 X, maybe 30, 50 X. I know Ben Shapiro makes like 10 million a year or something or a hundred million a year. I can't remember, but those numbers are like chunk change versus like investing in Google before Google, when Google was just starting up and getting a thousand X. So what you have to keep in mind is that the people who invest in venture capital um, they usually have a bit of money already. You have to be accredited. So you have to have at least, I believe a million dollars a year or like $3 million in net worth. So these are like wealthy affluent people already. Um, most of their portfolio is going to be in like stocks and bonds. And they set aside, the whole idea is you set aside like 5% of your net worth or 10% of your net worth and you put it into venture capital. And the hope is that one of these companies, they're going to explode off. You're going to make like your $10,000 investment turns into like 10 million um, so that's why the startup world is a thing for, it's because of that promise versus like investing in a real business where you m- maybe make like 10%, 20% a year. This one you're aiming for like a thousand percent. Okay. So there's a couple more of your recent videos. I say recent in the past month. So that I want to get to, um, first, and you have a little bit of a doom and gloom feel to the channel. Is that safe to say? Is it, is it cause it, if it bleeds, it leads. Is that the motto here? <laughs> I mean, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, this is like, this is, this is human nature and yeah, yeah, pretty much. But in the videos, at least I try to, you know, again, I try to look at the money and power angle mm. and the thumbnail and title. It's just like the hook to get people in. Yeah. I hear you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. Okay. So the first one is. America is done. That's what it says. Saudi Arabia's master plan to destroy the U.S. Now, I do talk about the Saudi the Saudi Arabia and OPEC and on a different show quite regularly, so have some understanding of of what what the Saudis are are up to in some level. But why do you think that they have a master plan uh, that's going to undo the U.S.? Yeah. So to understand that, you have to understand like a few things, like the dollar, the petrodollar, and Saudi Arabia's history. So the dollar, uh, it's on like its last leg, like it's lost like 98, 99% of its value. And historically, every currency has gone to zero. Like if you're, 
if I was a betting man, I would bet the dollar would go to zero. I don't know when, maybe like a few years, a few decades, I don't know. But all currencies have gone to zero just because the government prints too much, just like America is doing right now. So the dollar is like weaker than it's ever been. On top of that, um, a big, one of like the fundamental reasons why the dollar became uh, became locked as the world's reserve currency was because during like the mid 1900s, uh, during the, I mean, the 70s, I believe, during the oil crisis, um, America, like oil, oil prices skyrocketed. It really threatened America's reign because countries run on oil, empires run on energy. So America wanted to secure its oil supply. So they went to Saudi Arabia and they arranged this deal where if Saudi Arabia would only sell their oil in dollars, uh, the U.S. Would, would provide them with funding and protection and military aid and whatnot. So that was the deal that was cemented in the 70s. And that was the birth of the petrodollar. That's why today all oil is sold in dollars and not rubles or pounds or whatever. And because every country runs on oil, every country had now has to get dollars to buy oil. And the power of that is that it forces every country to keep dollars as the reserve currency. So the dollar uh, is cemented as the reserve currency of the world. And when you have the reserve currency of, of the world, you can do things like print a bunch of money during COVID and still see not that much inflation. Like we printed some insane amount of dollars compared to how many dollars there were out there. But, but because those dollars have to like go to other countries to, in the reserves to buy oil and stuff and to like do business because it's the reserve currency, uh, we didn't feel the full brunt of that inflation. If the dollar wasn't the reserve currency and we did the same amount of money printing, uh, like we would be wrecked today. We would see like way higher inflation than 10% or whatever. Mm -hmm. So with, with all that being said, um, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, all the countries, they know like the power of having the reserve currency. They know how much power it gives uh, the nation that is control of the money printer. Uh, and obviously they want it for themselves. So now that Saudi Arabia relations have deteriorated with the US, um, they're, toying, they're toying around with the idea of creating a new global reserve currency with China, Russia, and the other BRICS nations, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So they're toying around with joint BRICS and uh, creating this new reserve currency that would take over the, over the dollar. So yeah, that's yeah, pretty but cool. I mean, I don't know, India and Russia, I mean, India and China are, are historically not yeah. likely to get along. So that's where it's it's hard to, I mean, China has the digital yuan. Um, and so so they, they're making something with that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if India and China could mend the fence, if you will, and come together on a major agreement, that would be very much a, a huge blow to the U.S. Um, from a power standpoint. I'm not sure they can get there, though. That's that's kind of where I struggle is can can they actually put bygones to the yeah. side that come, come, come together? Yeah, I'm not sure how much India is involved in this, but yeah, the main players are right now China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia in this little scenario. Yeah, the Russians and the, I mean, the, I'm sorry, the Saudis and the Chinese have been meeting quite a lot lately. And it is interesting when you hear some of the narrative around the oil markets, 
um, people you know, will criticize um, the Saudis um, for how they're responding to stuff. I'm like, well, I'm sure China's calling them, telling them what they're going to do, and they're just responding accordingly. Like, that would make sense. Like, I doubt, I doubt the Saudis are sitting there trying to guess on what China's next move from a COVID reopening or COVID closing standpoint are. They, they, they probably have a pretty good pretty good understanding um but you know i don't i don't know why that doesn't seem to be the prevailing narrative okay and then the other one was um let's see here i just had it pulled up and uh yeah yeah why ftx is innocent um okay and listen i, I mean it's, it's a hard sale i'm gonna tell you right <laughs> now it's a hard sale uh just you've been warned all right so uh the whole idea behind that video is that um, everything FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried did was technically legal mm-hmm. because um, if you look into his backstory, his parents are very super, super high-level lawyers, business lawyers that deal in, I can't remember the specifics, but one of them is at like Stanford, I believe, one of the top law schools in America. So the, the idea is they know their stuff. These guys know business law. And... Um, so what Sam Bankman-Fried did, if you look at FTX and how they're structured, is that they have their U.S. entity, and then they have this giant web of international ent- entities. And the whole idea behind that was uh, they, they knew, Sam Bankman-Fried and his parents knew that U.S. security laws are extremely, extremely strict. You do one small little thing wrong, and you go to prison. But internationally, pretty much anything goes. Uh, Sam, Sam Bankman Free. That's why he set up his base in the Bahamas. That's why his company was centered in the Bahamas, and why he kept the U.S. entity completely, completely separate. So, I believe, based on my research, that most of the shady stuff that FTX did, they did it in their international entity, and they kept the U.S. entity like completely clean. Because again, his parents are lawyers; they know this stuff. Like, why would? They go through all this trouble, spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars that it would cost to set up all these international entities in different jurisdictions. Also that Sam Bankman-Fried can mess with U.S. depositor funds. Like, why would he do that? So all the stuff that you hear in the news about how he you know, took loans out of the depositors, he moved money from, his, from FTX to his hedge fund or whatever. I would bet that he did all of that in the international entities and he left the U.S. money alone because he knows how strict the SEC and the U.S. government is. Yeah, the the, the larger frustration with the FTX scandal is someone like uh, um, Kevin O'Leary, Mister Wonderful. You know, he, here's a guy who, up until we'll say four or five years ago, maybe three, always said. You buy stocks that pay dividends. You buy stocks that pay dividends. And I remember the first time I heard him change the narrative, I think his son was working at Tesla. And he's like, oh, I decided to buy this because it makes so much money. It's like, hmm. Okay, first off, I got a whole thing about Tesla we can talk about. But that aside, it's like, well, what happened to this whole dividend narrative? There's been growth stocks before, Kevin. This isn't the first one. And then he got into the crypto space a little bit. And then I didn't know he's tied up with the FTX stuff. Or if I did, I didn't realize it. And so then when it collapses, you hear him talking about need for regulation. It's like, if you would have just kept to what you built your whole thesis on is getting paid a cash return to own something, you wouldn't be in this spot. But you sold out 
for a lot of money, just say it. Just come out and say it. I sold out for whatever it was, 15, 20 million. I sold out for the money and I got burned. So that kind of goes back to that hypocrisy thing that drives me crazy. Yeah, it's not a good look for Kevin. Like I've seen him like try to defend himself. It, it, it doesn't look good. And I believe the reason why he's so hell-bent on defending his position with FTX is because uh, if he admitted any guilt, he could be uh, facing like legal trouble. Mm. So I believe that's why he's like, you know, defending himself super, super hard. But I agree with you. It's not a good look and it makes him look pretty hypocritical. It, just say no comment then, because I mean, just say, I don't talk about it because it's, it's an ongoing legal matter. I would rather you say that than try to feed me the nonsense. And I'm not like a Kevin O'Leary, you know, diehard follower. I've, I've watched some of his stuff occasionally. Um, he was on YouTube for a little while, and I, I catch those videos because he he does have obviously he's a smart guy, rich guy. He's got interesting things to say, and I've just heard him say for years. Um, my kids love Shark Tank, so it's on all the time. And when he's negotiating Shark Tank, he's always talking about getting this dividend, getting paid back, getting paid back. That's his yeah. whole thing. Uh, and then when he abandoned that, you go, hmm, hmm, that's that doesn't smell right. Like the the thesis hasn't changed here. Like yeah. the thesis hasn't changed. And and so to see someone like that go through that, I don't feel bad for him. I just I just I go, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you've lost the credibility that you spent so much time, so much time building up um, for the money. Okay, we all got a price. <laughs> we all have a price. So seventy-five million is what we said for ours earlier. We all have a price. And so <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not judging. I just, just you know, call it what it is. And so, yeah, you're you're probably right. He probably would face legal trouble. Where do you think that story ends up at, though? Because there was, you know, a law, a lot of people named. I don't know if Tom Brady actually knows the inner workings of the FTX or, you know, all the people in that named or not. I, I get why they are named. Do you think that this eventually kind of gets swept under the rug or will there be real hearings, um, court cases that are seriously taken and people prosecuted? Um. Well, right now, the thing about like prosecutors is that they're kind of like politicians where they have to appeal to the public. They have the whole job is to put away people that the public hates. Everyone hates Sam Bankman free right now. So you get a lot of clout, a lot of political credit, a lot of attention to yourself. If you can put him away in jail. So I think that's why like they're going so hard against him. And uh, you might see like him getting prosecuted or, or, or whatever. I'm very surprised that, you know, being that his parents are these like high level lawyers and stuff, like why he stayed in the Bahamas after all this broke news broke out, why he didn't just escape to a country that didn't have extradition with the U.S. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually did get in trouble. Maybe not anyone else in the organization, but definitely him just because he's the scapegoat, the scapegoat right now. Yeah, but he paid them politicians a lot of money. So that that helps. That is true. <laughs> that helps. Okay. Um, we got just a few minutes here left. Talk to me. Are you concerned or do you face, um, there's a lot of talk on, you know, I'm put occasional stuff on YouTube, not a big YouTube person. Um, I probably should be, but I'm not. Um, but are you, you gotta get on, okay. Okay. You're, you're, you're okay. I, I gotta get on. I'm not, I'm not nearly as talented as you to be on YouTube, but, but we, we can talk about that later. Are you worried? So we have on, as I said before, I'm talk, talking to you, we'll have on, all issues, all debates are all kind of like this conversational. They're very respectful, not 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 a lot of browbeating back and forth, just talking through stuff. Um, and and I, I was going to make a push for YouTube, and then I'm like, man, every time I think about it, I'm like, is it worth trying to get started? Um, there's there's the work side that we talked about. 
there's also the censorship shot and not having to worry about what I say on the show, being censored, being flagged. Do you come across that a lot? Is that a real threat? Is that overhyped? Because you cover a lot of controversial topics. I think YouTube is the best platform in terms of not censoring as much as other platforms. Facebook, Instagram, horrible. TikTok mm. is overtly horrible because they say <laughs> in terms of service that they shadow ban people. And like a ton of my TikToks I've gotten taken down for community guideline violations where they stay up on Instagram. I mean, uh, they stay up on YouTube. So YouTube is by far the best. I think they actually put a little bit of effort into making the life of the creator more fair and more, uh, more bearable because they have like, you can appeal and uh, you can write a little note. So it's by far not perfect. Some of my videos have gotten demonetized where they definitely should not have been demonetized. But compared to the other platforms, YouTube is amazing. So um, I've always been a big YouTube supporter just because, you know, this is how I made my money and how, how I built my business. Um, but yeah, they're, they're by far the best in terms of not censoring too much. Mm. What would you do if YouTube said no more? Um, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, social media platforms come and go. I wouldn't be surprised if, in the future, there was some other long-form video platform that took over YouTube, but we just don't see that right now. Um, but yeah, I'm not totally sure right now. Do you think that, I know Twitter is talking about, I think they just started actually monetizing creators for the ads that go in the, uh, in the, the replies to the, their comments and whatnot. I don't, I don't know about videos. Do you think that Twitter, it's a smart move by Twitter to attract content creators because right now Twitter is very heavy news but the business world is very heavy on people trying to get clients, um, but it's not heavily internally monetized. You can get, you can get work outside of it. Um, do you think Twitter can put a dent in some of what YouTube has? Because there's a lot of people there talking already. I think there's potential. Uh, and I think the more pl- social media platforms that offer great monetization methods, the better it is for everyone because it gets YouTube more competition. YouTube is still by far like the absolute best in terms of monetization because uh, YouTube AdSense pays a lot. Um, you have other features like the YouTube membership, the YouTube join button, mm-hmm. uh, just a ton of ways to monetize internally. That's why people flock to YouTube. That's why TikTok creators, they blow up on TikTok and then they try to move over to YouTube because you can make way more money on YouTube than mm-hmm. with TikTok, where TikTok right now is like super selfish where they don't pay you anything. Um. And YouTube Shorts just got monetized this month. So, yeah, it's not paying that much, but it's a lot better than nothing. So I think as that gets better, people are going to start flooding more from TikTok to YouTube. So I really hope that uh, Twitter figures this out because the more competition, the better. Mm. Final thing for me is with a large audience like you have, do you find that people really get outraged or is it a small vocal minority so you know because you go on twitter there's something everyone's mad about this it's like oh are we really mad about this is is is, are there really that many angry people in the world or is it is it a small vocal minority it's definitely a small vocal minority because humans have a negativity bias if you see a positive video that you love um you're less likely to leave a comment versus if you see a video that you hate that talks about something you hate. You're more likely to leave a comment when you hate something versus when you like something. So that's why the negative comments 
come to the top just because when you're when you are negative you're more likely to do stuff like leave a hate comment Mm -hmm. versus positive you're less likely to leave a positive comment if that makes sense yeah okay i think i said last question but um this will be out at least a week from today maybe two is there any tease or something that might come out in that time period that when it it drops people go oh okay cool um let me see people people always ask me this so let's see so we have an update video on the pipeline sabotage, the Nord Stream pipeline Nord Stream. sabotage. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that video. That should be pretty good. We have what? one on how um, BlackRock is going to be managing the reconstruction efforts in Ukraine. Which, oh, uh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I find very interesting. <laughs> wow. Okay, so I need like six hours just to pick your brain on how you do, how you do this stuff, uh, how you find these topics, because... I didn't hear that. That's, 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 yeah, that will be interesting. Yeah. 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 So money went from taxpayers to Ukraine to fund the war. And now BlackRock is going to own the debt that Ukraine is going to have to take on to reconstruct after the war ends. So pretty interesting stuff. Okay. Well, okay. So we're obviously going to send everyone to your YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes, but Jake, uh trans where you can search the youtube bar at they have the at thing now does that actually work you just type that in there um i'm not sure but if you type in jake trend that should be the first result yeah you should be so okay thank you so much for your time today and continued best of luck on continued success all right appreciate it ryan hey you made it to the end of this episode thank you so much now i'm going to ask a favor if you enjoyed it would you drop a five star somewhere and if you really enjoyed it would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.